0: Our Bible's go to Ezra chapter number two, please. Ezra chapter number two. We began a series here in the book of Ezra here on Wednesday nights, and uh, and we're going to continue that series. We're gonna uh, we're gonna go back just a little bit in chapter number one as we get into our first point. But tonight we're going to begin our reading in chapter number two. So look with me if you would. We'll just read one verse as we as we get going tonight. The Bible says in Ezra two in verse number one. Now these are the children of the province. That went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away into Babylon and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, every one unto his city. The next 60 or verses or so are, are, are lists of names, and, and really, it's really, really what it is, is a list of families and how many left to the nation of Babylon. Uh, or really the nation of Persia by that point, because the Persian Empire had overtaken the Babylonian Empire and had returned back to Judah and to Jerusalem. And, um, and, And so there's a significant portion of this chapter in which it's just name after name after name. But tonight I'd like to preach to you a message that I've entitled, Going Back Home. Going back home. You know, our text reveals the people who returned to Jerusalem and Judah. Of course, we, again, don't have time to read all of the names and the number of people that went in each uh, particular family. But in all, we're told that there were 49,697 people who left Persia to go back home and to return to the promised land. This was, of course, a long-awaited monumental return. You see, years prior, as the captivity was beginning, uh, there, 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 there existed in, among the people such a longing to return back home that, that it actually led to a great uh, conflict between Jeremiah, the true prophet of God, and, uh, and pseudo-prophets. We might use that, that term pseudo-prophets. The word pseudo just means pretend, a uh, fake. And uh, there were there were men uh, in in Judah uh, who were who were preaching and who were prophesying a message but this message did not come from God himself therefore we would refer to them as pseudo or pretend prophets and in Jeremiah 28 we Uh, We read of one of these prophets. His name is Hananiah. And I'd like for you to hold your place here in Ezra chapter number one, and I'd like for you to, or chapter two, and I'd like for you to go with me to Jeremiah chapter number 28. One of the great things about studying uh, again, uh, a specific book, especially in the Old Testament, we get an idea, we get an idea of who were contemporaries with this particular individual. And, um, and we see here that not only uh, Jeremiah wasn't necessarily a contemporary, he actually lived several years before uh, before Ezra would have lived and uh, and would have died before, uh, before Ezra uh, probably reached adulthood and, and came onto the scene. Uh, but we see here that, that uh, if you were sort of outlining your Bible and you are putting things in chronological order, you would probably put the book of Ezra maybe shortly after the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 28, in verse number one, we find the Bible says that it came to pass the same year in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, and in the fifth month that Hananiah, the son of Azar, the prophet, which was of Gibeon, spake unto me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priest and all the people, saying thus speaketh the lord of hosts the god of israel saying i have broken the yoke of the king of babylon within two full years will i bring again into this place all the vessels of the lord's house that nebuchadnezzar king of babylon took away from this place and carried them to babylon so we're introduced to this man by the name of hananiah and one day, Hananiah approaches Jeremiah. Jeremiah is wearing, as a uh, as an object lesson in some respects, he is wearing a wooden yoke, and he's wearing this yoke because it signifies uh, the bondage that the children of Israel, the children of uh, really of the nation of Judah, are getting ready to go into. They are going to be sort of in bondage or in yoke under the king of Babylon uh, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and they're all wondering, okay, Jeremiah is telling us that this is happening. We're already seeing some of our people being led away. How long is this captivity going to last? And uh, Jeremiah, his message seems to indicate, hey, 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 buckle in. You're going to be here for a while. When a man by Hananiah comes on the scene and he walks up to Jeremiah and he says, God has spoken to me. God has revealed a message to me. Here's what God has told me. God has told me that he has already broken the yoke uh, that the king of Babylon has uh, over over all of the people. And he said he said this. He said he, he said within 2 full years all of this is going to be over. This whole mess that we're dealing with, our people are being led away, uh, our our, our buildings are being destroyed, uh, our streets are becoming desolate because Babylon is moving all of our people out of here. But don't worry, don't worry, within two years, all of this is going to be over. So this was the message of this pseudo prophet by the name of Hananiah. As we read a little further in our text of Jeremiah 28, we find that Jeremiah agrees that what Hananiah had prophesied would come to pass, but not according to Hananiah's timeline. Look with me if you would in verse number six. Jeremiah now is speaking. And it says in verse number uh verse number six even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. So he says, amen, yes, the Lord is going to break the yoke that uh, B- that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar have over us. And he is, the, the, eventually the captivity is going to be over and the sacred vessels are going to be brought back, amen. He says, amen to that. The Lord do so. The Lord perform thy words, which thou hast prophesied, to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house and all that is carried away captive from Babylon into the, into this place. Nevertheless, hear thou now this word that I speak in thine ears and in the ears of all the people. The prophets that had been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence. The prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. So Jeremiah says, listen, you've said it's two years. I'm saying it's gonna be a whole lot longer. You've said God has spoken through you. I am saying that God has spoken through me. So really, which one of us is it? It can't be both. God God doesn't give one message to one person and another message to someone else. And so Jeremiah says, "Here's, here's here's how you'll know who the true prophet of God is. As it has been for many years and many generations prior, The prophet through which God speaks is the prophet through which his prophecy, when it is spoken, comes to pass. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, listen, I really can't argue and I really can't debate with you a whole lot. You've said two years. I'm saying a whole lot longer. How are we going to know what the truth is? Well, we're going to have to wait at least two years to find whether or not your prophecy is true. I kind of like Jeremiah's approach. I mean, Jeremiah could have sat around and argued with this guy all day, and they could have gone head-to-head and had some type of a conflict like we see on Fox News or MSNBC, two talking heads just yelling at each other. Neither one of the other one is ever going to give way, is ever going to see it the way the one person does. But for sake of, you know, we've got to have something on the news, we sit around and we argue about it. They could have done that. Jeremiah says, we're not going to play that game. We're not going to play that game at all. Here's how you'll know who's telling the truth. You're going to know it by whether or not their word comes to pass. Well, well, this obviously is, is uh, something that enraged Hananiah because Hananiah did not like to be challenged. He did not like uh, to, be, uh, to be charged uh, in this way. And, uh, and so Hananiah takes the yoke that Jeremiah is wearing. He removes it from his head and he smashes it to pieces. You read it, it's right there in Jeremiah 28. Smashes it which leads Jeremiah to look at Hananiah and say, that's fine, that's fine, you can smash my yoke of wood. Here's what God's going to do. God's actually going to take the yoke that you smashed, and God is actually going to fashion not a yoke of wood, but he's going to fashion a yoke of iron. A yoke which cannot be smashed so easily. The Bible also tells us that at the end of this particular chapter, Hananiah would die in that same year for his lies and for his teaching rebellion against the Lord and his word. We read of that in verses 15, 16, and 17. Now, I want to just, just say a word or two about this particular idea here and this particular conflict, and I hope that you'll hear me out. Though Hananiah was dead wrong, and he was. In fact, he paid for it with his life. Though Hananiah was dead wrong, he was quick to be believed because his message appealed to his audience. I mean, you can understand why that message is appealing. He's telling us two years, and he's telling us a whole lot longer. Who do you want to believe? Sort of like, you know, folks walk into churches today, come into one church, and the church preaches, unless you repent, unless you believe in the gospel, then you're going to die and go to hell. And then they walk out of that church, and say, You know, I don't really like that message a whole lot. And they go to another church. And they walk into that church and they sit down, and the preacher stands and he says, You know, you know God is love, God loves everybody. And I know, I know the Bible talks about hell, but you have to understand that a lot of that is just figurative. A lot of that is just, you know, it's sort of allegory and, it, and, and, it, and it's, and it's sort of like parable. You know, Jesus used parables when he taught. And so you don't have to believe in a literal hell. God, God's not gonna, God's not gonna send anybody there because God is love. Well, you can understand why that would appeal. That appeal to certain people, can't you? People who perhaps maybe they have loved ones that died. They, Never heard that loved one ever talk about believing in Jesus. Why would I want to believe in a gospel that may potentially put my, put my parents, put my grandparents, put someone that I know and love dearly in a place the Bible calls hell? I don't, I don't want to listen to that. You you can understand why a message could, could be more appealing in some, in some senses you see these people wanted the captivity to end they 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 wanted their vessels to be returned to the temple they wanted to be allowed themselves to return to their homes they wanted their lives to go back to what they had been previously and so this false prophet this pseudo prophet seizes upon this and simply proclaims to his audience what they wanted to hear can i just tell you anybody can do that and many people do They sort of, you know, sort of they lick their finger and they put it into the air to see which way the wind is blowing and they find out that you know the wind of culture is blowing in this direction and people don't really want to hear a message of judgment and a message of condemnation and a message of a holy god and had a message of man being a sinner and so they and so they tailor the message to what it is that people want to hear and if hananiah listen if hananiah was a pseudo prophet can i tell you there's lots of pseudo preachers in our world today a lot of pseudo pastors who stand up and and, and, they, and, they proclaim a, and they proclaim a message that God, listen, God has never said. That's what Hananiah was doing. Because God had never come to Hananiah and said two years. God hadn't said that. Now, the, no, no, no one would know until the two years had expired and when they realized we're still in captivity, that guy was pulling a fast one on us. But at this point in time, no one, no one knew he was able to get away with it for a time. Well, this led Jeremiah to write a letter to the captives that would counter the lies of the pseudo-prophet Hananiah and others. That letter is contained in Jeremiah chapter number 29. It's fascinating to me how the Lord works. In my own Bible reading, I was reading these very chapters this morning. Lord knew, Lord knew I'd be studying in Ezra chapter number one and Ezra chapter number two, which again, all of what is being addressed here is speaking of the events that take place in Ezra chapter number one and Ezra chapter number two. And Jeremiah would write this letter to the people there. And uh, in this letter, he would reveal that the captivity was not going to last two years. It was actually going to last 70 years. And as a result, he told them, listen, settle into life there in Babylon His message, again, was not a popular message because the people didn't want to wait 70 years. They they, they sort of liked the two-year wait instead. They wanted to go back home. But again, understand, listen, the message is not about what do the people want. The message is this, what has God said? That's the message that needs to be proclaimed. Can I say again that we consider that this type of battle is played out in Christian culture still today? We are warned that in the last days men would heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. We read of that in Second Timothy 4.3. Can I say that today we see evidence of that even, listen, even in our churches. The largest churches in America today feature positive, affirming messages. I'm talking about the churches that, that attract tens of thousands of people on a regular weekend. In most cases, in most cases, those pastors stand and they very rarely, they very rarely confront the culture. They very rarely speak about the wickedness that is pervasive in our society. No, 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 normally they're talking about positive, affirming things. They're making people feel better about themselves, which lead again to more and more people... Coming and going to these places, because who doesn't want to go and hear a positive, self-affirming message uh, in, their, in their church and in their worship? The problem, however, with this is that this book is not always positive. And this book is not always affirming. It just isn't. This book is sometimes negative. This book is sometimes unaffirming. Uh, This book that I read is sometimes condemning of certain behaviors, lifestyles, and activities. And Christians, listen, Christians today, here's what they need. They need a Jeremiah to tell them the truth. But too often, too often they gravitate more to the Hananias. And they're and those are always listen, those types of people are always going to be around and available to speak a comfortable message. Therefore, one must decide. Do they want a Jeremiah or do they want a Hananiah? Obviously, Hananiah was proven to be a pseudo-prophet and the captivity lasted 68 years longer than he prophesied it would. Or we could say it this way, it it, it, it lasted exactly as many years as Jeremiah prophesied it would last. But now as we come back to Ezra in chapter number 2, we find it is time for the people to return. The 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah, chapter number 29, have expired. They've come to an end. And now God has stirred in the heart of Cyrus. And Cyrus has said, God is leading me to send the people back to the nation of Judah for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. This trip back home would be taken by some of the Jews, but not by all who were living in captivity at that time. And yet I propose to you that every step in their journey back home was a vivid reminder of some very important truths about God and his faithfulness, as well as important truths about man and his unfaithfulness. And what I'm saying is this, every step of the journey from the Persian Empire back to Jerusalem and back to Judah, every step was a reminder, was a reminder of some things about God and a reminder of some things about man. And I want to share with you the two key truths that going back home reminds us of or teaches us from God's word. Number one, number one, let me say this. Going back home reminded them, reminded God's people that his power is beyond compare. Going back home reminded them that God's power is beyond compare. Now, in order for us to, uh, to, to, to to lay hold upon this truth, we have to go back to Ezra chapter number 1 and look in verse number 7. The Bible says, "...also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord." which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods, even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazer, the prince of Judah. Some of you, maybe one of these days you have some children. There's some good names right there for you to name your children. All right? I like that, Mithridath and Sheshbazer. Man, please, if you'll do that, that would be a blessing. Now, look at verse number, verse, number, verse number 11. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up with them of the captivity that was brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. Now, if this does not proclaim God's power, I don't know what does. You see, not only did God stir in the heart of Cyrus to allow the people to return, But Cyrus took it a step further. And Cyrus even allowed the sacred vessels that had been removed from the temple in Jerusalem some 70 years prior, he allowed those to be given back to the Jews so that they could take them with them to be restored to their rightful place. The return back to Jerusalem, listen, would not have been complete without these. You see, you see, not only did God promise to bring the people back, but He also promised to bring these vessels back as well. So, so therefore, listen, listen, God's word would not have been fulfilled unless, unless the vessels returned too. This is a significant part of the story. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 27, verses 21 and 22. Yea, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon, and there shall they be until the day that I visit them, saith the Lord. Then will I bring them up and restore them unto this place. So God says, listen, I know you see the people have begun to make their way from from israel or from judah to babylon they've been carried into captivity and you think well that's okay because all the vessels still remain in the house of the lord but i want you to know something before all this is said and done the vessels are going to get carried away as well but don't you worry about it because at the time that i've appointed not only are the people coming back but the vessels are coming back as well i would say that it was a miracle for the people to be allowed to return but 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 stay with me here it might be an even greater miracle for these vessels to be returned. Here's what I mean. The vessels weren't just sacred. These vessels, according to Scripture, were of great monetary value and worth. According to Ezra 1.11, the total number of vessels that were made of pure gold and pure silver was 5,400. That's a lot of worth. That's a lot of value. Let me ask you this question. What political leader, what monarch do you know who is willing to allow this kind of wealth to leave his kingdom for nothing in return. I mean, it, listen, it, it's all about money. You know that, right? I mean, we, we, we like to think, you know, we're in the nation of United States and we have this democracy, and this democracy keeps everybody in check. And, and this democracy, we, we must uphold this democracy because, you know, look, look at all this, this history. I mean, our political leaders, all of them are really good guys and gals. We like to, sort of like to think that, don't we? Nothing could be further from the truth. Washington, D.C., is one of the most corrupt places on planet Earth. And everything that we see is just follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. And our political leaders will be, do some pretty, some pretty dastardly things in order to secure and to procure more money. It's all about money. And yet here is Cyrus, not exactly a, you know, a, a, a righteous, upstanding, godly man. And yet Cyrus says, no, "Hold on a minute, hold on a minute. You, you folks, you can't go by yourselves. I, I, I'm pretty sure we have some. Uh, I'm pretty sure we have some of your valuables here." Let me here. Come on over here and, and put your hands out and let me. I need at least five thousand four hundred of you because I've got five thousand four hundred pieces of gold and silver, uh, pieces of vessels that need to go back uh, to your kingdom. So, so put your arms out and hold them real, hold them real good. Can you believe that? Can you imagine if that? Listen, if that isn't a demonstration of God's amazing power, I don't know what is. Because political leaders and kings. They don't do that kind of stuff. And you say, well, wait a minute. You know, in 2020, we, we, we were given all this free money. You know, I mean, we just, you know, we just woke up one day and we checked our bank account and there was a bunch of money sitting in there. Don't you tell me that our political leaders don't give us any money. How are you liking it today? <laughs> Paying for it now, aren't you? There's no such, listen, there's no such thing as free money. Never has been in the world unless... Unless God steps in and unless God gets involved. And I would tell you that I, as I study this, I think, I think this may be a greater miracle than him telling the people to go back. I mean, you know, the, the people being there, their presence there probably was more of a drain on his economy and his nation than anything else and sort of was an advantage, you know. I mean, we get rid of some of these some of these people, and, you know, we can kind of allow our people to spread out a little bit and maybe have a little bit more land and some, you know, maybe knock down some of their houses and add on to theirs and, you know, do some different things, maybe free up some jobs for our people and for the economy. And so you can understand why sending the people back to Judah wasn't probably all that big of a deal. But to send them back with the sacred vessels that had to have been worth perhaps millions of dollars, oh, that's a That's a demonstration of God's power. I want to ask you this question. What issue is in your life that you think will never be resolved? What spiritual mountain do you think is in your life that will never be removed? What financial burden have you dealt with so long, so long that you are convinced it will never be made right? I want to encourage you to take heart and to have hope. And I want to leave you with this thought. I'm not saying God will. I'm not saying that. Here's what I am saying. You should know this. I can't say God will, but I can say this. God can. God can. Because his power is beyond compare. So we conclude tonight. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. We will pick up this second thought when we Gather together the next Wednesday that we're together. But Psalm 147, and would you look with me in verse number one? This is a great psalm that speaks of God's amazing power and His strength. The Bible says, Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is present, pleasant, and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up the meek. He casteth the wicked down to the ground. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. "...who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains... He giveth to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. For the sake of time, we, we won't read the rest of the chapter, but you read all 20 verses speak of God's amazing power and of God's amazing strength. And I believe, I believe that as the people of God return from the nation of Babylon with every step, perhaps as the, as the gold, as it, as it glistened, as it gleamed against the, uh, the noonday sun, every step and every glimpse. At that gold and at that silver was just another reminder that their God, the God that they serve, listen, He and His power is beyond compare. Because no one, no one, no one can do such a thing as this. Because not only had God said the people are going back, but God said the vessels are going back as well. And wouldn't you know it, wouldn't you know it, every time they looked at the wagons that were carrying those vessels, they were reminded, our God, our God is beyond compare as it relates to power and to strength. And you need, listen, you need to be reminded of that truth as well. That the God that we still serve today is beyond compare when it comes to his power and his strength and his might. Would